Now, in 1857, in a Roman building, which was a Roman barracks, that is, it housed Roman palace guards, the, what is believed to be the first ever picture of Jesus drawn that is still in existence was discovered, scratched into the wall. Dating from about 200 AD, there was something called a graffito, which a, a soldier had presumably scratched into the wall, maybe possibly about another one of the soldiers. And there was a, a picture of a young man lifting up his hands in adoration, and at the bottom it said, Alexamenos, that's the name of this guy, Alexamenos worships his God. The young man's adoring hands were directed towards a figure on a cross, a figure that had a man's body, but a donkey's head. This was not a nice way of talking about Christianity. Alexamenos worships his God. How pathetic this God is. That graffito shows us the contempt with which those outside the Christian faith thought of the message of Jesus Christ, which at that point was starting to turn the world upside down. And without the eyes of faith, that contempt, that scorn for something that is pathetic is in some ways actually understandable. Don't let the church's status or apparent status in some parts of the West fool you into hiding what is the scandalous heart of Christianity that God himself became a man to enter into the mess of our existence and to die as a wretched criminal. That's pretty pathetic when you look at it without the eyes of faith. The Bible doesn't shy away from this. The Bible isn't embarrassed by this. In fact, the Bible quite proudly announces nothing stops God working as he wants. He will always get his way, even through human mess. This is what the Apostle Paul says in the first letter of Corinthians. He says, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. What's the link then with this passage with Rachel, Leah, and Jacob? Well, basically, our passage shows us God doing wonderful work through pretty woeful circumstances. Don't be fooled by the mess that we have just heard in this story. God is in the business of using mess to get to majesty. He can always be trusted to do what he has promised. On the surface of this story, we have a sordid, seedy, actually quite desperately sad affair where no one really comes across well at all. After what we heard last week, which is a, in some ways a slightly nice love story, a bit weird, but slightly nice, we now seem to have descended into a tale of sexual politics that would make some pretty popular post-watershed TV viewing if um, current recent shows are anything to go by. So again, you might wonder, why am I saying that this passage shows us that God is using weak things to shame the strong, that God accomplishes his wise purposes through foolishness? The reason why I say that is because the only place in the Bible after Genesis where Leah and Rachel are mentioned together 
is at the end of the book of Ruth. Boaz is marrying Ruth, and the villagers say this to Boaz of Ruth, May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah. After reading the story today, you're thinking, why? <laughs> Rachel and Leah, who together, what? Played a cynical uh, game of deal or no deal with their husband? No. What they say is, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. What a beautiful statement of God's mercy. After the story that we have just read, God is using this to build up the house of Israel through mess to majesty. The story we've heard and that we're about to, to work our way through is part of the origins story of the nation of Israel. These sons of Jacob end up as the heads of the tribes of the entire Israelite nation. Their names are immortalized throughout history. So spoiler alert, Jacob gets his name changed to Israel later on in Genesis. But this origin story isn't exactly a, a, a glorious and romantic struggle for a nation forged in the fight for freedom with noble ideals of wisdom and justice and courage. It's just a pretty desperate race to the marriage bed and the birthing pool. That is the origin story of God's people. And the larger principle that is at work here is that God is at work fulfilling his promises and we have to trust nothing is going to stop him doing it. Nothing will get in the way of God bringing life and blessing to a dying world because that is not something that we can do. It is not achieved by human effort or ingenuity or religious or moral performance or merit. It is entirely God's work in putting right what has gone wrong. Well, we'll get back to all of that a bit later, but for now, let's revisit the characters and the scenes that we've just heard read to us. So verse 31 of chapter 29, we'll start with Leah, and we're told pretty explicitly what's going on. Leah was not loved. Leah was kind of doubly cursed in this, because if you remember from last week, or if you weren't here last week, Jacob isn't attracted to Leah. He wanted Rachel. So he doesn't find Leah attractive, point one, that's why she's not loved. But point two, Jacob was tricked into marrying her. So not only does he not find her attractive, he resents her because he was tricked into this marriage. And just a note on the, um, the sort of mention of polygamy here, that is a man having uh, multiple wives. It's not condoned in this passage. And in fact, the Bible shows wherever God's design for marriage as set out in Genesis 2 is abandoned, things unravel. Polygamy always equals sadness in the Old Testament. But that's the situation that they're in. And so we see that Leah isn't loved and maybe we feel compassion for her. We, we have some sympathy towards her. And do you know what? That's entirely right that we do, because God has compassion on her. God shows kindness to her. And there's a lesson for us there. If a perfect God can still treat the undeserving with kindness, then we should too. So Leah is in this sad situation. It's a loveless marriage. She is looking for love. But the way that the story is told, and particularly when we get to the fourth son that Leah bears to Jacob, we kind of get a hint that she's actually looking for love in the wrong place. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that a loveless marriage is okay. That's not what I'm saying at all. But the hint is that she's looking to Jacob for something she should be looking ultimately elsewhere for. 
And so the Lord sees she's not loved and he opens her womb and lets her have children. It's again a nice reminder for us in a world that seems to have abandoned God or maybe thinks that God wound up the clock on creation and just let it go, that actually God is at work moment by moment sustaining everything in existence. He is involved in even the tiniest details of our lives. But anyway, there she is. Leah is pregnant. Out pops child number one. Ha-ha! A son! That's what we'll call him. That's literally the name, Reuben. It means see, a son. Now, names in the Old Testament, they're actually quite functional. You may have noticed, or maybe you wanted to avoid footnotes because they give you a chill, but as we were going through the reading, there's a lot of footnotes, a lot of references right at the bottom of the page to do with each of the names of the boys that are born. Now, names hold a lot of significance, and as I said, they're actually quite functional. They perhaps describe something that's true about the person or something that the parents want to be true about the person, an aspiration they have for the child's life. But it's kind of a Ron Seal approach to things. You know, they do what they say on the tin. The the name tells you something pretty functional about this child. And all of the names that were given of the boys in this passage sound like Hebrew words for other things, and that's why the boys get the names. As I was preparing this, I just couldn't help thinking um, about uh, the 15th century explorer Giovanni Caboto, and I'm sure you're wondering why. Um, Well, I'll tell you, Giovanni Caboto, um, he was an Italian, but he had a charge from the English king, Henry VII, to go across the Atlantic and discover, you know, stuff and things. (laughs) It's a nice historical, technical detail there. And anyway, there he goes off, off over the Atlantic and happens upon the east coast of Canada. Wow, this land that we've just newly found. This is brilliant. We need to make a note of this and sort of report back to the king and, and all this. And I have no idea how this conversation goes, but I like to imagine it was something like this. That there's Giovanni saying, aha, you know, to the person making notes, make a note of this land. Draw the map. We're creating the map. And the guy drawing the map. So like, okay, that's fine. What should we call it? And Giovanni Caboto is like, I mean, that's, that's above our pay grade. That's for someone else to decide. Just, just put something down for now, anything. And the guy making the notes is like, okay, what shall I put down? And Giovanni Caboti's like, well, it's kind of land. It's newly found. It's kind of new found land. New found land? Just pop- someone will come up with something better down the line, I'm sure. Um, <clears throat> the Ron Seal approach to geography, the same as the Ron Seal approach to naming children here in the Old Testament. It's functional. It's to just describe what's there. And that's what happens with each of the names as we go through. The names mean something in this situation. So Reuben, look, a son. That's what it means. That's what the name Reuben means. It's not just a label. It's not as though Reuben could have been a a Roger or a Richard or a Rodney. No, Leah is looking for love. And she's saying, look, a son. Maybe I'll be seen now. She's also saying, the Lord has looked and seen and given me a son. There's a lot of looking. There's a lot of son stuff. So let's just say he's called, look, a son. Hopefully, Reuben, now I will be loved. Sadly not. Reuben did not work to secure Jacob's love. Because when the second child comes along, she's still not loved. Because she thinks maybe this child will do the business. Maybe the Lord has heard of my misery. He has heard that Reuben didn't do the job, and so maybe now this child will fix things and I will find love. So let's call the boy something to do with hearing. So they call him Simeon, which sounds like the Hebrew word heard. So Simeon, hearing, but that doesn't work either. Simeon doesn't bring about the love she's looking for, so there we go again. Child number three comes along. Maybe now Jacob will show attention. Maybe he will show attachment to his wife. 
So child number three, let's call him something like attachment. Levi. That's the name he gets. Can you, can you see how actually quite sad this situation is that gives rise to these boys' names? And yet what's really interesting is, let's say the tribe of Levi becomes the tribe of the priests of Israel. It's huge. And yet this is how they start off, a wife looking for love. But then with the fourth child, something seems to change. Verse 35, she conceived again. When she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. I think we're being told here something has happened in Leah's heart, a glimpse of truth. Don't get me wrong, she, she seems to mess up later on. She forgets the breathtaking insight she enjoys here. Isn't, isn't that the way we often live the Christian life? But she seems to learn the deeper truth that God loves her. The Lord loves her. The Lord is being kind to her. So we have a genuine moment of accepting the Lord's mercy. So the name she gives this boy is God be praised. Literally, Judah means praise. The Lord be praised because he has been good to me. She's now no longer looking around her, but she's looking up and saying, yes, I can praise the Lord because he has shown me love. And as I said, the way the story is being told, I think we're to get Leah has understood something of God's mercy here. He is to be praised. He is the one to focus on. That's what Leah wants Judah to remind her of. The Lord be praised. Leah's loveless marriage isn't solved at this point. But at this moment, at least, she's prepared to entrust herself to the Lord, his love and his promises. And maybe that's your battle this morning. You, you need to lift your eyes up and say, whatever my circumstances, I can at least know this, that the Lord is good and he is worth praising and trusting even when life is tough. So that's Leah's story so far. Let's move to Rachel. And Rachel is in a desperately sad situation. We were told back in verse 31 of chapter 29, she, she's barren. She, she hasn't got an open womb. She hasn't born children, verse 1 of chapter 30. And there is so much heartache. There is so much difficulty in her situation here. But there are several hints in the story that Rachel's response to this, this horrible place she finds herself in isn't right. So first up, the, the idea of having children is not simply to be a mother, as, as, as lovely as that is for Rachel. But actually, in Genesis, the story so far has been the promise of a child who will be the savior of the world, basically. And through this family, God has said, I will bring this child who will be the savior of the world. And Rachel kind of seems to be saying, I don't want to wait on the Lord to fulfill the promise. I want to be the one. Give me a child or I die. So already we've kind of got a hint that actually we know God's going to be doing this his way, but Rachel is saying, I'm impatient, I'm not prepared to wait for God. And so she is jealous. I once heard someone describe envy as sorrow at another's good. Sorrow at another's good. Someone else has something, we know that anything we have is a gift from the Lord, and so rather than celebrate the Lord's kindness to her sister, Rachel envies her and she is sorrowful that Leah has enjoyed something good. Another hint that Rachel's response isn't right is the demand she makes of Jacob. I mean, it's pretty dramatic. Yes, it expresses hurt, it expresses heartache, but the generations of women above her also endured perhaps many decades of childlessness. They, they didn't respond like Rachel did. Rachel should know, as Jacob reminds her, that actually it's in the Lord's gift, not his as to whether she has children. And finally, there's no kind of 
prayer in this picture. Jacob points to God, but notice he doesn't lead her in prayer. He doesn't help her approach this situation from a standpoint of faith. He doesn't calmly and patiently help her through this difficulty. He just says, well, it's God's fault, not mine. Neither of them pray. When Jacob's father, Isaac, and his wife, Rebecca, couldn't have children, Isaac prayed with Rebecca. Jacob here is just impatient and dismissive. So Rachel, rather than entrusting her life and its circumstances to God, she lashes out. And there is a lesson here. Whenever we lack things in our life, whenever we do feel that emptiness, whatever our attitude needs to be, it cannot be resentment of the kindness that the Lord has shown to others. Because in effect, it's resenting his grace. Now at this point, you can see each sister has what the other wants. Did you see that in the story? Rachel has the attention of Jacob. Leah has the children. They both want the thing that the other one has. Neither are content to entrust themselves to God's purposes. Rather, they look across and they're envious. Now, in this specific context, the covenant promise that God has made does include children. It does include offspring. That's not the promise of the new covenant under Christ, but the the principle, the deeper principle, is the same. God has promised life and blessing to the undeserving, and nothing will get in the way of that promise. The challenge for us this morning is, will we believe him? Or will we get impatient and perhaps try and take things into our own hands? Because for both Rachel and Leah, that is what happens next. They try and get God's promises through their own efforts and schemes. And what happens? Even more mess. We have maids and mandrakes. So Rachel says, here is Bilhah, my maidservant. She puts forward Bilhah and offers her to Jacob as a surrogate. And Jacob, not thinking straight, ignores the family chaos that was caused when his grandparents, Abraham and Sarah, did exactly the same thing, obliges. And hey, presto, another son is born. We're told Rachel feels that God has vindicated her, verse 6, and so she calls the boy Dan which kind of sounds like judged or vindicated. However, almost as if to point out the fact it's not vindication before God she wants, but victory, she allows this arrangement to continue. Bilhah has another boy, and the name that Rachel offers this time, Naphtali, means wrestling. Rachel has been in a fight, and she has won. And actually, there's a hint here that the fight isn't just with her sister, but perhaps even with God himself. Now, up to this point in the story, it's not clear what Leah is making of all of this. We've had that moment of clarity at the end of uh, chapter 29. Maybe she's prepared to rise above it and rest contenting God. Well, um, a few years later and a few Rachel surrogate babies later, she makes her intentions clear. Basically, she says to Rachel, anything you can do, I can do better. Zilpah! Out comes Zilpah! Now, now Leah is using her maid as a surrogate. Out come good fortune, Gad, and happiness, Asher. More boys born, more heads of the tribes of Israel born in this really quite sorry situation. And these names suggest that Leah is descending more. She's, she's not even concerned now about the relationship with Jacob. She's just looking after number one. I've got good fortune, I've got happiness. Because I've got these, that's enough. 
But just as if we thought the story couldn't get any lower, there is one final step down into carnage. And it's to do with these mandrakes. Now, first, you might be wondering, what is a mandrake? If you've seen Harry Potter, you might think, ha-ha, I know what a mandrake is. Let me tell you, you don't. Um, if you don't, the screaming baby things that they pull out of the soil, don't worry if you've not seen it. Um, that's not what a mandrake is. These mandrakes, if, if you read people who like reading books about biblical flowers, um, such books exist, would you believe it? Um, a mandrake is, is an exotic plant. It has a blue flower and a yellow fruit, a bit like a plum. You're not going to remember that. But the things you do need to know are that it was believed to have two properties. It served as an aphrodisiac and as an infertility remedy. Notice how pertinent that is to these two sisters. Leah's son gets the mandrakes and she's thinking, aha, maybe, maybe this will get Jacob to be sexually interested in me again. Because Rachel's words in, um, where is it, in verse 15, Rachel said, he can sleep with you tonight, suggests that Jacob's not with Leah at all. He's with Rachel all the time. So Leah's thinking, these mandrakes will, will get Jacob to be interested in me. Rachel, of course, is thinking, well, these mandrakes, maybe they will help me have children for myself. So we've got these mandrakes, um, kind of, and this mandrake battle that is going on. And we see in the story that Jacob is then traded like a commodity. That bit in verse 15, he can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. Jacob um, doesn't sort of put up any resistance, doesn't offer any observation on what a mess this is making of his family. No, he just goes along with the process, as it were. Just more sex, more baby boys, and hey presto, you've got Issachar and Zebulun added to the family tree. Two more heads of tribes, named because of the circumstances of their birth, after their mother had rented some intimacy from her own sister with her own husband for the price of a couple of plums. It's pretty inglorious, isn't it? Pretty unimpressive. I mean, those words barely serve to describe what's been going on in this family. In this glimpse, God is showing us what happens when we don't rest in his promises and we think he's doing things wrong. But he's also showing us that, in fact, our hope of life could never depend on us doing something right. Because not even despite this mess, but through it, God's mercy wins. And that's where our characters finish today. Verse 22, the beautiful mercy of God. Just a note on Dina. Dina gets a big feature later on in Genesis. Um, it's in, in sort of the literature of the time. It's extraordinary that a daughter being born is even named at all. It's because she plays quite an interesting role later on in the story. But verse 22, God remembered Rachel. Rachel didn't need the mandrakes. This is several years later now than, than the mandrake thing. God is able to do anything he wants. And in fulfillment of his promise, in his mercy, this messed up family would be the foundation of his people. And so he opened Rachel's womb. There was a, a Welsh preacher in the 20th century called Martin Lloyd-Jones who once, pre once preached an entire sermon on two words in Ephesians 2. These two words, and I'll try and do it in his voice, but God. That's kind of how he does it. The whole sermon, every now and then, he just kind of breaks out in, but God. And it is based on what he calls the divine disjunctive in Scripture. Time and time again, you have stories of human mess, human mess, human mess, human sin, human screw up, but 
God. Time and again, you get that pattern running through Scripture. And in Ephesians 2, it's, we were dead in trespasses and sins, children of wrath, prepared for destruction, but God, rich in mercy. And that's kind of what you have here in this passage. You have mess, you have mess, you have even more mess. You have maids and mandrakes and all kinds of mess going on. Then verse 22, then God. It is God's mercy that matters. It is God's mercy that counts. And then we come to the final name of our story. And again, like so many, all of the other names, it has various layers of meaning linking to God's mercy. So on the one hand, the name Joseph sounds like the Hebrew word to take away or to gather up. And Rachel says, he has taken away my disgrace or he has gathered up my shame. He has done it. I couldn't do it myself. God has done it. But Joseph means, may he add. Rachel's childbearing isn't done. In chapter 35, she produces the 12th tribe of Israel, Benjamin. But what Rachel has learned here is that receiving life and blessing cannot come about through human effort. May he add is how this episode finishes. Rachel surrenders herself to live in God's mercy. And it teaches us it it depends not on the one who is most shrewd with their maid, not the best maker of a mandrake smoothie. It depends not on the one who works or runs or seeks to achieve, but on God who has mercy. As with Jacob and Esau, it's not about deserving, but on the freedom of God to bestow grace on the undeserving. And he delights to use this kind of mess in order to showcase the triumph of his grace. And really the big message of Genesis, the big message of the whole Bible, is that salvation is of the Lord. What is impossible for humanity, it's unthinkable that a holy God could take sinners to himself and make them his children. What is impossible for humanity is possible for God. Time and again, the barren, the weak, the small, God delights to use what is lacking in order to bring about life and salvation so that we learn not to trust in created things, but to throw ourselves on his mercy. And once you realize he is that kind of God, you can put your faith in him and know your sins will be forgiven. You will be counted righteous because he is the one who makes the impossible possible. And that's why I chose that reading from Matthew to be read, because that really is a story of screw-ups and weakness and losers and the pathetic to an all-conquering salvation. Because as we read the story of Leah and Rachel, you might be wondering, well, through which son is the promised offspring going to come? Is it Joseph? Rachel is the one that Jacob loves. Joseph is her actual first. Well, maybe it's through Joseph. Well, actually, it's not. It's Leah's number four, Judah. The Lord be praised. God alone provides salvation. So in the genealogy in Matthew 1, the genealogy has Judah named there. And Judah did not cover himself in glory, shall we say. Judah slept with his son's wife. It was all right at the time. He thought she was a prostitute. And then the family line kind of carries on. And you get some pretty rogue characters thrown in there. King David, he's not an impressive guy. He's an adulterous murderer. And so on and so forth. They're not all scoundrels, but it's a pretty mixed bag. Until you get to a virgin in Galilee. Talk about the impossibility of having children. But just to make the point about God's grace crystal clear, God says he will make this virgin do the humanly impossible, have a child. 
and his name will describe where he's from and what he is to do. So from Judah, the Lord be praised, comes one who is called the Lord saves, God with us. He is called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Because in Jesus, God himself is living and working to fulfill his promises of life and blessing. What is impossible with us is possible in and through Jesus Christ. Salvation from messed up lives and disobedience to God. God achieves the impossible by gathering up our shame, our guilt and our punishment and taking it to the cross in order to bury it forever so that we can have peace with God. That pathetic, weak, foolish picture of the cross in what looks like defeat, God is achieving humanity's greatest victory and to prove it, he raised him from the dead. And so I say to you this morning, there is no other name that can give you what Jesus Christ offers you. Salvation is of the Lord. And because of that, we know that God moves from mess to majesty. Our final point now, whatever situation you're in, I say to you this morning, whatever situation you're in, whatever mess you've come from, or whatever mess you're currently going through, it is not too much for God to handle. It is not too much for God to redeem. I've kind of referenced this before, but it seems to carry on being a big issue. We live in cancel culture, don't we? Someone says or does something stupid or wrong, cancelled. Straight away, completely written off. And in that kind of culture, we're left wondering, is there grace available for me? Because I've screwed up, I've messed up. Well, the message of our passage, the message of the whole Bible is that there is grace available, but it's only through one, Jesus Christ, and yet no one is beyond it. Not even me, not even you. And also that means there's nowhere you can fall, even if you are in Christ, from which God cannot pick you up and use you. What a beautiful moment of mercy at the end of Ruth, After this sordid tale of sexual politics, God is able to look back and help the people look back and say, Leah and Rachel built the house of Israel. What a lovely statement of God's mercy. No one is beyond his grace. And third, specifically, if if either Leah or Rachel's situation has resonated painfully with you this morning, maybe unfulfilled desires or emptiness or hardship, The promise of the gospel is not that those things are done away with here and now. There's no promise of instant healing in a marriage or a fruitful womb. But, as I think Tim Keller pointed out, what we have in our passage is a promise that the happily ever after that God promises is unstoppable precisely because it doesn't depend one little bit on you. And what's more, we have a promise that God's mercy is so vast that even the mess and pain of your life can be used for an eternal majesty you can't begin to imagine. This isn't an easy solution to pain, but it's an invitation to trust the Lord with your pain and a promise that none of it gets in the way of the good he wants to do for you. But let's land then on that other big picture that you have an unimpressive beginning to something really quite glorious. These are the founding tribes of the people of Israel. 
What an inglorious start to their lives. And to be fair, as they go on, they don't exactly cover themselves with glory anymore. They are pretty scandalous. But God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. What a wretched looking family. You get to the New Testament and Jesus chooses 12 disciples to to sort of carry on, but also do something new when it comes to the people of God. The 12 disciples are not impressive. At the start of Acts, they're a wretched little bunch. So a, a small family, a wretched bunch of apostles, those 12, the new 12, yet they end up immortalized, not just in this life, but in the life to come. In the vision of glory, at the end of Revelation 21, in the sort of new heavens and the new earth, Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem is seen coming down from heaven, the place where God and his people will dwell in glory and happiness forever. And this is how it is described. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Three on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. This wretched, inglorious start. Reuben, look, a son. Levi, maybe my husband will be attached to me. Those messy names are immortalized forever. They form the foundation of the structure of the people of God into all eternity. God takes people from mess and uses that for majesty. And the day is coming, one day will come, when kings and queens, emperors and presidents, celebrities and influencers, whoever else has thought themselves above the church, who thought Christians were pathetic, will realize, will be forced to realize that that little group of Christians in the building on the corner That little group of Christians in that Christian union in school, the individual Christian in the classroom or in the workplace, however pathetic and irrelevant they seemed in their eyes then, they will realize that they are part of something that will far outlast everything and anyone else. So don't scoff at the insignificance of things in your life if you are in Christ. God has a way of making mess into majesty. Alexaminos worships his God, and it is our delight to join him.